0: take your bibles this morning turn to ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 a couple weeks ago my wife and i were here on a monday in greenville i came for staff meeting to meet with the staff Uh, my wife went shopping i'll be back tomorrow for another staff meeting and she's not coming (laughs) that was an expensive trip I didn't think you could spend that much money in Greenville, but evidently you can. But while we were, after I got through at the staff meeting, she and I just kind of drove around. I'd heard of Commerce, never been there, drove over to see Commerce. I don't know why now, but we did go over and look at it. (laughs) But as we're coming back, and we're coming back, and we cut across, so we're coming into downtown Greenville. I was shocked when I saw that I was crossing the Sabine River. I didn't know the Sabine River was here. I grew up on the Sabine River, Orange, Texas. In fact, if you've ever been on IH-10, going from Texas to Louisiana, there's a big bridge. Underneath it, this is the Sabine River. It's a big river. And I swam underneath that bridge my entire life. We would tie a rope underneath the bridge, slide all the way down to the middle of the river, and then get on the shocks and we'd swing off of that. And I, I've gone back. I've started a few years ago swimming again, so I do a thousand yards a day. And so I was other days trying to get back from COVID, and I was got back to my thousand yards. But I got to thinking, if I tried to swim the Sabine River like I used to, I would drown. I've lost my strength and ability. But I didn't know the Sabine River was this far over, 120 miles from where it is. So I, I learned something new. So that must be another reason why I like Green is because I got my roots here. The water started here and it ends up down where I lived. So, all right, let's get into the last part of chapter three, we're wrapping up. In fact, we've really already wrapped up all the theology of Ephesians. We've been doing that over the last several weeks. When we get to chapter four, verse one, we're gonna be going into the practical. Now, how do you live this out? How do you take these amazing truths now, for years, I was privileged to teach for Southwestern Seminary, and I taught pastors, mainly pastoral ministries, of course I taught. But one of my verses that I really nailed down to my guys that would be in my classes was Ezra 7.10. Ezra says that he, that it says of him that he set his heart to study, to practice what he learned, and then to teach. One of the things I've learned over the years is, you can study all you want, but you'll never be an effective teacher because you don't really grasp nor understand your subject until you have worked out in your own life doing whatever it is you've been studying. It's one of the key principles of life. A friend of mine teaches finance at UTSA, but he was head of the USAA finance department for 20 years. He only has a master's degree, but he is one of the top professors at UTSA in finance. He's got like 50 young men and women on Wall Street making a fortune now under what he's done. And he is super well off financially because of what he learned. He has professors at UTSA who have PhDs. They get paid three and four times what he does. He doesn't do it for the money. And they are using, one class is using his notes and his insights because a teacher who has a PhD in finance doesn't fully grasp nor understand all that goes with that. It's Ron's practicality of daily life, of living with that for 20 years and making billions of dollars. If you're a USAA investor, he's responsible for much of your investments during that time. So Ezra, was so effective because he not only knew the law of God, but he was living it himself so that when he did teach, it impacted people's lives. May I state to the Apostle Paul, it's the same way, especially when we get here to Ephesians, because when I look at the verse, what we're about to look at, this is what Paul, this is how he lives. He is living out what he deeply believes. Now, when he gets to chapter four, he's going to say this in the first verse, I want you I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility. Now, we'll start that next week moving into how we live this out. But it says with all humility to walk in a manner worthy of this calling we've been given. What is humility? Humility, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 3 through about 11 or 12, you know exactly what it is. It is that you consider everyone else more important than yourself. Verse 5 is going we'll to say, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He was found in appearance as a man, was made in the likeness of a servant. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, death on a cross. But because he did that, God now has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above all names, and that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. One of the most powerful passages on what Christianity truly is about. Humility is everyone else is more important than yourself. And as Paul has been working here at Ephesus, he's now in prison, he's writing back. He's doing this because he truly cares about the people. And what he's going to do next is he's finished teaching the great insights that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing have a place that they, he's prayed they would understand that. He has prayed also that they would understand that they were dead in their trespasses and sin, but God's rich in mercy made them alive. He taught them about the purposes of God, the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. He's building one nation of people on the foundation of prophets and apostles. Christ is what holds all of that together. And then last week we saw in chapter 3, verse 1, He says, I get the privilege, the amazing privilege to be able to teach this and to be able to share with you. And he goes again into how we're now fellow heirs with the Jews and we're part of all that he's doing. He gives this huge picture of that God's eternal purposes are being fulfilled. But when he gets to verse 14, he now stops a moment. And so if you'll stand with me, let's look at these verses, 14 through 21, and let's see how he puts into practice. What he's later going to command us at the end of chapter 6, it needs to be a part of our life. And here's what he says. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And the verse you're probably very familiar with. Now to him who's able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within, him, within us. To him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen father be with us now as we look at this may we learn from paul's example may it show us how we should live out our lives at this moment he's not commanding us to pray but he does set the most amazing way of praying and we need to learn from that so father speak in a very clear way this day is my prayer in jesus name amen you may be seated I would think if you grasp and understand the verses we just read it will change how you pray so let's look at what he prayed for here because a lot of times our prayers nowadays are for things we need and for what we want others to get I mean my prayer list could be right now my son has had an interview with Lockheed and so he's with Conoco my wife wants him to get the job because it would bring him to Fort Worth and get him out of Midland and she could have her son close by that is not my prayer my prayer is God you work in this young man's life and you do what you need to do if it's to bring him to Lockheed fine if it's at Conoco I want my son to grow in grace and mercy I want him to know the great truths of what life is about now wherever you place him that's where he's going to learn that well let's look at how paul prays for this church because i think you and i could learn a lot from that so the first thing he prays for is that they'd have the strength to live each day it's found there in verse 16 see paul does something in prayer that is very critical his prayers are about others and not about himself he's in prison he's not saying pray let's get me out of jail he's not praying for certain things that he wants he's just praying for the others he's he does that all the way through these first three chapters he's lifting these people up in prayer can you think of somebody else in the old testament who because of their prayer life it changed them in a dramatic way job job was a good man one of the finest men who ever lived on this earth What that man went through is one of the worst crushing experiences any person could ever walk through in life. There may be those in the congregation, I know there are, that have lost children. There's nothing more painful than that. I've walked through that with several members over the years of my pastoring, and I had two of my children severely injured to the point that I thought maybe we might lose them there for a while, but we did not. But it is unbelievable. He lost ten. All at once, totally gone. He went from rich to really almost financially broke overnight. I mean, all of his cattle, all of his sheep—oh, and that's where sort of their wealth in those days. All of that gone. I can't even fathom waking up in the in the morning and finding out that I've lost my children, I've lost my grandkids. And Jen and I have lost our entire retirement and we have absolutely nothing and they're going to take our house away. That's really what happened to Job in a more modern sense is that he lost everything in one moment. And then after that, if that wasn't enough, he lost his health, which makes it even more difficult. Those of you who've gone through very major health battles know how difficult that is on your, your soul and on your spirit as you walk through those health issues that you go through. And he lost it. He lost it badly. He lost the support of his wife. And what he lost also is a man that's very stunning in itself because he was the kind of man that when he walked in a room, men would stand up. Have you ever known a man in life who when he walked in a room that everybody would stop talking and everybody stands? I I have. General Jerry Boykin who started Delta Force is a good friend of mine. And I have been with him on several occasions. He's been in my church. I'll never forget he came and spoke at a men's breakfast at our church. We normally would have 50 or 60 or 80 for the men's breakfast. We had over 200 show up because the general, who was very famous, was there. And everybody's just jabbering away, and he had been in my office. He needed to make some phone calls, and he came into the fellowship hall we were at, and when he did, everybody stopped. They were all sitting at tables. They all stood up and just looked at him. I saw that happen to him three times. So when I read Job, I understand now. He had such respect among all the men that when he would walk in a room, they'd all stop and look at him. Everybody went to him for advice and everything else. You may not know this, but reading a Job, he loses all of that. He lost all of it. The respect of everyone. Children mocked him. His enemies came after him because they had him on the ropes now. They were out to destroy him. And then you know his three friends with their great counsel. Good old Job, you must have really done something stupid and God's just nailed you for it. What would you do at that particular moment? We know Job struggled. We know that he was in agony. You can't not be in agony at this point and the struggles not be intense and real at this point. But we learned something towards the end of Job that this man did that was stunning. And what did he do? It's in Job chapter 42, verse 10. The Lord restored the fortune of Job because he had prayed for his friends. I find that stunning. His friends had turned on him and were blaming him. And what did he do the whole time? He prayed for them. My challenge to you today is this. You pray for everybody. Those you love and those you may not love. Even though you're supposed to. That's what Paul's doing here. He's praying for these people. He knows some of them because he had been there. He does not know all of them. I've got to know some of you over the three months I've been here. But a lot of you I still don't know. I have recognize your face but not, I don't know your name. So Paul would have been doing that. But he's praying for these people because he cares about them. They're important to him. And what he's praying for is for them to be strong. See, he's not praying for physical strength. Too often my prayers have been for others for physical strength. I've changed that. Over the years, I don't do that as often. I pray for the strength within the heart. You know, one of the things you learn as you get older is is that you um, you lose your strength. There's a Proverbs. I, I did a, picture of me on Facebook recently and I took a a, I haven't taken a selfie I didn't even know really how to do that so I did that, took it and I said the glory of old men is gray hair this is glory (laughs) this is it I like the earlier part of the verse in Proverbs it says the glory of young men is strength strength I had that at one time, I don't have that anymore. Even when I was in my 50s, I hired a trainer and was lifting weights, I was benching 250 pounds, I'd do three sets of 12 at 250, I was squatting 1,000 pounds, I felt strong. My trainer said, you could probably take your boys on in arm wrestling. So this old, the old dad challenged my boys who both are powerhouse lifters, big arms. We sat at the table, we went like this and they like to rip my arms totally off. Our strength disappears. And if you're older, you've learned the fact you don't pray so much for strength anymore. What you need is strength here inside. You need strength inside. And that's what Paul is praying for. He says in verse 16, I, I'm praying that God would grant you according to riches of glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit. This is not something you get on your own. It's something the spirit of God gives you in the inner man. Paul told the church at Corinth in the second letter, though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being strengthened day by day by day. You know, the greatest people I've ever known in life, men and women, are the ones as they've gotten up in life have this inner character that's just stunning. They've lost their strength. They don't move as quick as they used to move, but God has worked in their lives that they stand strong against anything that goes on in life. And that's what Paul prays for. And that's what we ought to be praying for each and every one As you pray for your friends and family here in this congregation that God would not so much give them the physical strength but the inner strength to deal with what they're facing, an illness, loss of job, dealing with children that make life very difficult, all the different things that can happen within life, praying that God would give them the kind of strength and stamina in their heart and mind. Let me get some men in the Old Testament and, and even in the New who demonstrate the strength that God can give. How about Joseph? Is not Joseph a stunning story? He came from the most dysfunctional family there ever was. The, the nation of Israel start-off is, it's, in one sense, is almost horrific. I mean, there were four wives involved with all these kids. And they didn't like each other. There were battles going on and they really didn't like Joseph. And so what did the brothers do? They intend to kill him. One of them came to a sense and said, we shouldn't do that, so they sold him in slavery. He gets into Egypt and got to go, okay, this is even might be better than where I was with my family. I've been right here in Potiphar's house, but you know how that went when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He was innocent as could be, but he got thrown in jail for something he never did. He spent 12 years, from 18 to 30, in jail totally innocent never doing anything wrong and yet this man never buckles under he has a strength and character that is stunning you may not know this about joseph but when he finally sees his brothers years later and they show up you know what he did he wept he wept that's more than just crying that's when your heart is broken when he saw his brothers, the emotional tie to what they did to him was still real The PTSD that he experienced, what they did to him, was still real. But God had strengthened this man in such a way that he could overcome everything that his family had done to him, and he stands strong as one of the greatest leaders in the world during his day. That's what Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus, and you and I should be praying for each other to have that kind of inner strength so that no matter what happens within our lives, we're able to stand strong. And if I get to the end of Ephesians and I get to chapter 6 and verse 10, we're told three times to do something. What is it? Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. If the church at Ephesus is going to do that, then this prayer that Paul's praying, that they be strengthened in their man, is very important. How about Caleb? Remember Caleb, one of the two spies that said, Let's go get the land? Ten said no. One of my staff members, uh, Doug, that was his hero. Doug's about 74 now and he said that he's wanted to be like Caleb at the age of 85 he can still go to war and so he spent his whole life staying and he has really done an amazing job of staying in shape uh, he doesn't really want to go back to war now. He's done that before, so he's seen enough of it. But Caleb says, I'm 85 today, and I'm as strong today as I always have been. I have the strength. Now, he was talking physical, but what he meant more than anything else was there was a physical, uh, spiritual strength in this man that is so strong that it had been developed all the years of wandering in the desert with Moses and Joshua that he is now ready to face whatever God's got for them in the days ahead. Yeah, he still has some physical strength, but it came because of the spiritual strength within his heart. How about Daniel? You want a bad life? War breaks out in Texas. You lose everything you got and you're hauled off to another country and never coming home to Texas ever again. That's the story of Daniel. His city was destroyed, Jerusalem. He's taken to one of the worst kingdoms the world's ever known. One of the most powerful kingdoms I've ever known. He's been thrown right in the midst of it, being young and strong. They want to use him, and, and they train him. He goes through all their um, educational system. But yet this man never wavers in the midst of this. Even as a teenager, he does not waver in this. And when you throw him in the lion's den, he's pushing 80 years of age. 80. And he's as strong at 80 as he was when he was a teenager. He has not wavered in all these years. And in the lion's den, Daniel spoke to the king. He said, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel. He shut the lion's mouth. They've not harmed me. I'm all right. That comes from a character inside that is unbelievable, that's been strengthened. That's what Paul's praying for. Peter. Peter's the one who walked on water but sunk. I've been to Peter's house. It's still there. He, it's just a block or two from the synagogue in Capernaum you can still walk in and glance you can't go in it but you can look outside and look in it I now know why he was a fisherman the Sea of Galilee was his backyard so he just went out on the back porch and there would probably been his boat and he fished out there all the time he's the one who denied Christ but when you get to Acts 12 James has been executed and he's facing execution more than likely the next day what was he doing I'm always amazed at what he was doing. Sound asleep. In fact, when the angel went to get him out, what did the angel have to do? Had to kick him. It's like getting a teenager out of bed on Sunday morning to come to church. You got to kick him a little bit to get him started. So we have, all my grandkids were at our house last night and it was a chore getting everybody up this morning. I said, I got to go to Greenville. Let's go, let's go, get up, let's go. Because I didn't want my wife to have to deal with all that. Well, Peter was asleep. How do you sleep the night before your execution? you know God's in control and he's a man who's now got strength and courage in a man that's so strong it's unbelievable how about Stephen one of the first deacons ever one of the greatest men in Christendom they stone him to death he falls on his knees he cries out with a loud voice Lord don't hold this against them that comes not from a physical strength that comes from a spiritual strength that is stunning you and I need to pray for each other that we have, that God would grant to us. It's not something we get on our own that God would grant all of us. You need to pray for others in your church, for your family and your friends. They need that more than anything else that you pray for. The second thing they need to know is this. They need to know the love of Christ. So when I get down into verse 17, he says, I need you to strengthen them so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded love may now comprehend so what you need the next is, you've got to grasp what this love of Christ is about. It's the sovereign work of God that gives us the foundation we need to live. And it is him who roots and grounds us in love. Both of those are perfect tenses in the Greek. It means you're there, it is not going anywhere, you're as solid, you've been established, there's a foundation been laid. And what you need more than anything else is understand how much God loves you. You know, we talk about that all the time, but I think a lot of times in our sermons and our Sunday school lessons, we talk about God and his love. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That all comes in. We know it. We, yeah, we believe that. I don't know if we always fully grasp how much you and I are truly loved. Because when tragedy comes, one of the first questions you'll ask is, do you forget me? Don't you don't care anymore? Yes, he cares. His love had not wavered one bit no matter what you're walking through. This love is something that his spirit has to put within us that we grasp and understand. And after everything Paul has taught in the first three chapters, that you've been blessed now with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that you were children of wrath, but he now has made you part of his family and he has forgiven you and he's given you a part of his kingdom and he is doing this amazing work in the world that you get to be a part of and you and I are built on a foundation, a solid rock in which to stand. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. You're important. Growing up in Southeast Texas, my goal in life was to play third base for the Houston Astros. Doug Rader was the Bob Askramani before him. I can do all the statistics of my Astros. I got scrapbooks when I was in high school of every game they ever played. Still got them in a safe at the house. Nobody wants them, but I keep them secure for some reason. But I've got all that kind of stuff. That's what I was going to do. Trouble was, I was 5'4", 120 my senior year. And I couldn't hit a curveball on top of it. I wasn't going D1 baseball, which meant I would never make it into the Astro organization. So then I thought, well, I'll do something else. I'm gonna to switch to singing because my brothers are singers. I've told you that story. And I tried out for the Witnesses, very famous singing group in Southeast Texas. Not as famous as y'all singing groups somewhere from around here that I've heard about, but they were pretty well known. My brother, one of them, was in it, and so I tried out for it. Mom said when I got home, "How'd you do, son? Did well. I got it. The other guy was terrible." And then they picked the other guy. The true story. I didn't get it. They said I was about as bad as you could get at that particular point. I will tell you that my biggest struggle when I left to go to University of Texas was I didn't like who I was and I didn't think anybody cared. I wasn't a Christian. I hadn't come to know who Christ was. For me, the most amazing thing I've learned all these years is that God always had a plan for Stephen. that he loves me more than I ever deserved to be loved. And he loves me that much even this day. If I disappoint him along the way, yes. Preachers are not flawless. We have our own faults. so I'm not letting my kids hang around here too much. They'll tell you all my faults. But God loves me, and he loves you. And this love is so big that he uses words in and, and verse 19 or 18 that you can comprehend with everybody else the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. It literally means as high, as wide, as deep, as far as you can go. You can't even begin to encompass how much he loves you. God's love cannot be encompassed by geometrical measurement. It exceeds anything. And we need to pray that God would help us to comprehend that. I can do the best pulpit skills that God gave me, and it's not going to sink in unless God opens your heart and your mind to understand this. You need to ask for it. You need to pray for your family to understand how much Christ loves, loves them. Because it'll transform their lives. I know I said this a while back, but back when my wife had kidney cancer and it looked bad. This is 20-something years ago. I went out to our house that we were building a brand new home. It was about halfway through. I was trying to decide, do I pull out of the house? Because if something happens to her, I can't afford the house. We'd lose her income. House was expensive. We were taking a big step in life. But I sat there with tears in my eyes i don't i don't cry much i very rarely have ever cried in my life but i did that day and you know i've i know what suffering's about i've written doctoral papers on this stuff i've walked with people through it all that education is good and we need it but it doesn't help at the moment you know where i found peace i did this a few weeks ago Jesus loves me, this I know. Little dumb children's song I learned when I was a kid. Just remind myself again that no matter what I was going through at that moment, God still loved me. And as you were doing a moment ago, he'll never leave nor forsake me. That love is real. We need to pray that we understand it. Because he says here, love, in verse 19, surpasses knowledge. I now understand that. I didn't always understand that. I'm a student at heart. Let me sit at my computer with my books and I'm in hog heaven. I've done that my whole life. That's one of the things I love about being a preacher is I could take two or three days a week and just lock myself in my office and and read the great writings and study the great thoughts and try to put stuff all together. But that doesn't do one bit of good when it comes to living life. What comes good is knowing that God loved me and will take care of me and watch over me and bring me safely home one day. We need to pray for each other. You know, I've always wondered what was the difference between Peter and Judas on the night of the crucifixion? Judas betrays Christ, but so does Peter. Judas commits suicide later on. Peter's pretty much broken. But Peter comes back, Judas doesn't. What was the difference? Jesus looked at Peter and said, young man, do you love me? You know I love you. Young man, do you know, do you love me? You know I do. He him that three times. I think Peter became a great man because he finally understood how much Jesus loved this old fisherman who had messed up so badly, and it transformed his life. And then lastly, we're praying for this, for others, not only to be strengthened and to understand the love of God, but so they will be filled with the fullness of God. That is found in the latter part there in verse 19. To know the love of Christ or surpass his knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we want to pray that our family and friends are filled with the fullness of God. And the word filled just means to the brim or over the top of the cup. I was making a cup of coffee in Keurig yesterday. My wife went, what are you doing? I said, I'm making a cup of coffee. You'd already done that. I hit it a second time. Coffee was running all over the floor, all over the counter, because I'd already done the cup. Getting old, I forgot I'd already done the cup, so I hit it again and did it. So the fool, I now understand. Now, I had to clean up the mess, so I didn't really want to learn that lesson. But he's saying he's going to fill us up like you do a coffee cup, all the way to the top. And the thought of being filled with the presence of God should be the desire of everyone in this room who walks with Christ. So that's why we pray, Father, grant to us to be strengthened in our man, that Christ would dwell in our heart as we trust in him, that we are rooted and grounded in love and grasp and understand that. And we're now in a position to know the love of God. And when that happens, when we understand that, we are filled to a fullness. Now, my grandmother and I argued this all the time. She thought that I needed to speak in tongues in order to be filled with the fullness of God. And of course, being a grandson, I could hassle her and make her life a little difficult. We would argue this constantly. I remember calling her and I said this. I said, Grandma, I, I got filled with the, with the Spirit. She went into tongues on the phone. She was full gospel. She was so excited her grandson had joined her in this great move in life. She said, when did it happen? I said, when I got saved. You sorry, Baptists? we joke about that all the time. We really did. And we got along fine. And I had to hassle her sometimes. That's just what a grandson does. But I've come to realize over the years that I I was on target. Not just then, it's to be all of our lives. He's going to command us later to be filled with the Spirit of God. But what we're wanting more than anything else, and we pray for each other, is that this fullness would be a part of who we are. In fact, you may not know this, but in the book of Ephesians, fullness is a key thought running all the way through. In one twenty three, in his body, the fullness of him who fills up all things. In, the verse, in verse 19 of this chapter, filled to the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 4, that we'll come together to a statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ, will be a part of all of us. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And in 16, now that you have that, you can stand firm. You want the very presence of God in your life such a way that when you walk through this world, it is seen by others Not in some arrogant fashion, but it'll be seen this way. Let's go back to Stephen. I started with him as one of the illustrations. Here's a man that the fullness of God was there. He knew God's word. He was brilliant. And when he speaks, his Old Testament knowledge was stunning. But here came a man that's such a good man, such a solid man. And it says this, Stephen, full of grace and full of power was able to do great signs and wonders among the people they were unable to cope with the wisdom of this man or the spirit in which he spoke see the fullness of god was so real it was saying and then it said this they all fixed their gaze on this man as he stood before them they're about to execute him and they fixed their gaze on him and you know what they saw a face like an angel a face like an angel Now, I don't know what a face of an angel looks like, but I think there was such a a look on his face and his eyes that you could see almost literally see the presence of God as he stood there. My wife, she's tried to teach me to do this. I'm not very good at it. Years ago, one of the great teachers at Southwestern Seminary spoke in my church, and we took he and his wife out to dinner. My wife had always heard about Dr. McGorman but she had never met him, and he was in his mid-80s. And we had dinner, we had a great time. It was an honor to me to have this amazing man sit there and visit with me at the table. But we get in the car that night to go home, and my wife looks at me and says, I see why you like the man. I really love this man. This is a man I like. I said, why? She said, there's life in those eyes. I said, what? She said, there's life in his eyes you can see the realness of everything about everything i've ever heard about him you could see it in his eyes and i said you're kidding me she said no she's done that to me several times so if she looks you in the eye when she's visiting here sometimes you might be careful you might put your sunglasses on if you don't want her to see too much but i really do think this i pastored one of the great men of west texas ernest green He lived be 99. When I did his funeral, it was standing room only. I I went back, got to be a part of his funeral, one of the great honors I've ever done. But that's what people would talk about, which is you love to be in his presence. That's what the fullness of God is about. It would be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the gist of the sermon today is maybe you need to change what you're praying for you know, I joked a few weeks ago that I was praying for a, 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 a Chevy Sierra. Yeah, they don't make them, so God never answered that prayer. I don't pray for cars anymore. I did when I was younger. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I don't pray for anything like that anymore. I just pray God would show my kids and my wife grace and mercy and help them to know who they are in Christ. And then I'll walk with them whatever happens to us within life. This is how we pray. And when Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 18 to pray and commands us all to do this, he's referencing back to how he prayed. Because this is more important. People have the strength, the understanding of love, and the power and the fullness of God in their life. You pray that for each other and then watch what God can do. And I close with this. I'm not even spending much time on it because you've already done too much on it. He is able to do abundantly beyond anything we ever ask or think it's one of the great truths of god's word that what you start praying for he'll do even greater work than that but pray the right way according to the will of the father and then sit and watch and wait and see how he responds i don't know about you but i want to have when i get thin i want to have the strength of character that i'm still standing strong been fortunate to make it the first 70 years but the race is not over with my mom died at 70s and I take after my mom which kind of my brothers give me a hard time about that because I don't have diabetes and they do and they say well but you take after mom that's why you don't have it that's not fair I said she's gone she died at 70 oh we forgot that so you're not gonna be here much longer (laughs) you got to love your brothers at that moment I don't know how much longer I've got. But I want to finish well. And I want to stand at the end and say, I fought a good fight. Finished the course. I kept the faith. Now God's got waiting for me something very special. Crown of righteousness will not only award to me, but to all of us who will look forward and love his appearing. That's what this is about. And we need each other's help to get there. And so you pray for your friends around you that God would open their eyes to understand who Jesus is. I know they already believe in him, but they need to see that. They need to grasp that. They need to grasp his love, his presence, so they can experience the fullness of God in their lives. Join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor that you give us to study your word. We thank you for Paul's example of prayer. It really teaches us much. Even though there's no command to pray this way here. It is evidence of what this man understood and what he had learned so that when he deals with people, this is how he prays. May we learn from that. May we adjust our prayer requests in such a way that they reflect these things that we are asking for and that you would be glorified through that and that all of us together would grow strong in Christ and be able to stand firm as we walk through life and to be able to finish well. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.